0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB, Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Qatar Economic Forum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Complete chaos at the Capitol on January 6th. Amateur historians of the Kennedy assassination only had 26 seconds of the Subruder film to study. But a motley assortment of Internet sleuths have reams of footage from January 6th to analyze. They call themselves the Sedition Hunters a community of ordinary people turned Internet sleuths who've spent hundreds of hours examining the videos, sharing, cross-referencing, and dissecting information on Twitter or in private group chats to bolster the FBI's official inquiry. Joining me is Bloomberg Legal Reporter David Yaffe Bellany. David, tell us a little about Chris Sigerson.
2: So Chris Ferguson is an out-of-work actor in Canada. I think, like a lot of people during the pandemic, he struggled to find full-time work. Kind of trying to figure out what to do. He, you know, adopts a lot of the common pandemic pastimes, like making sourdough bread and renovating his house and that kind of thing to try to kill time. Then we get to January 6th, and like so many people around the world, he's just transfixed by what's happening at the Capitol, appalled, outraged, and also sort of curious and, and wants to learn more about what had happened and, and what the origins of it were. So pretty early on in the weeks after January 6th, Chris Sigurdson joined a kind of sort of loose network of people who soon labeled themselves sedition hunters. And what they did basically was sort through the reams of footage and photographs that emerged from the Capitol riot to try to figure out who was there and what those people did. So the simplest Form of that was just identification. You know, here are three different crowd photos. And look, I've identified the same person in each of the shots. So it's clear that originally they were at this part of the Capitol, and then they broke through these doors, and they were in the main rotunda. That's the type of work that these people were doing. And in some cases, they'd share their work publicly on Twitter. In other cases, they'd send it straight to the FBI or to investigative journalists who were looking into the riot. And that was the kind of initial wave of activism from these groups.
0: Were people arrested because of this information they found?
2: Yeah. I mean, the way I became aware of these sedition hunting efforts is that I spend a lot of my day reading through the arrest affidavits that are released every time a Capitol rioter is charged in a federal court in Washington. And so I started to notice these references to online sedition hunting efforts. And that's because the feds were giving credit to these online flutes saying, you know, look, this person identified these three photos of the same guy in the red MAGA hat who entered the Capitol. And that allowed us, to build up enough evidence to arrest him. And so, yeah, they've been really amazingly successful in kind of achieving concrete results.
0: Is the FBI using the footage that these sedition hunters are isolating?
2: Yeah. In, in some cases, there were images that were isolated by the station hunters that have been used by the FBI. In other cases, the FBI will release a really clear image of somebody, and the sedition hunters will identify that person in other videos and say, oh, look, you know that person who you photographed walking into the Capitol was also in this group that was spraying police officers. That was the type of thing that these sort of sleuths were trying to figure out. And since then, it's, it's evolved into kind of more ambitious projects. I mean, there are still people out there who have yet to be identified, and there's still online submission hunters working on that, but you've also got people who, having poured through hundreds of hours of footage over the course of months, are now trying to figure out, like, what did this particular group of Proud Boys do at the Capitol? Were they mobilizing in a certain way to block exits and prevent people from escaping? Could that be a sign of coordination and planning? And can I build a broader narrative about what a particular group did that could help the FBI charge them with something more serious like conspiracy? That's the type of work that's happening now.
0: Are they doing it because they like being amateur sleuths, or do they have deeper reasons?
2: I think you've got a mixture of motivations. There are certainly people who just felt a kind of righteous outrage when they saw the video of the storming of the Capitol on January 6th and who just wanted to contribute to some effort to hold people responsible, who felt like they had a kind of civic obligation to help out. And there's a feeling, especially now, that Republicans in Congress have blocked the formation of a independent, bipartisan Commission to investigate the Capitol riot, that this might be one of the only ways to hold people responsible, these sorts of informal techniques. Then there are people who are just really fascinated, on kind of a nerdy level, by the technical challenges of sorting through all this stuff. You know, how do you organize hundreds of hours of footage so it's easily searchable? How do you create a database of these images so that people who are doing those more complicated projects have somewhere to go? You know, how do you mobilize these disparate efforts and kind of channel them to something really productive? So there are people, I think, who are drawn to it for that reason. Then, you know, I think the pandemic played a role as well. Like I was saying with Chris Dickerson, people had more time on their hands. They might be out of work and they were able to dedicate time that they wouldn't have been in an ordinary year to these sorts of efforts. So it's really been a, a kind of wide range of things that's sort of fueling the sedition hunting.
0: And some websites have popped up, like seditionhunters.org and Jan6Evidence.com, and they have a lot of information.
2: They're well-designed and often feature pretty complex and sophisticated tools. I mean, one of these websites has a map where basically bits of video footage have been matched with specific GPS coordinates around the Capitol. So you can you know, navigate to the east side of the capital and, and locate all the footage that was taken in that geographic area. And one of the people I talked to is working on a new feature for that map, which would enable users to sort of plug in new video as they find it. The thing gets moderated so that this map is a kind of crowdsourced thing that's constantly growing. Um, there's also a website that has a facial recognition database where you can drag and drop a photo and then it will turn off other photos taken on January 6th that appear to feature the same people, kind of allowing you to do that cross-referencing work that would otherwise be pretty strenuous and time-consuming. There is also a website that just has a kind of gallery of the suspects with the best possible photos of each of them, with hashtags that identify them, that make it easy for people in the online discourse to have the same sort of set of reference and say, you know, oh, look, it's hashtag Red MAGA guy who is here and he's in this other photo as well.
0: There have been some mistakes and false steps made by the sedition hunters.
2: Yes, there are major potential pitfalls with any crowdsourcing effort like this. If you think back to the Boston Marathon bombing when Reddit users misidentified a suspect, that's the sort of risk that's out there when you have untrained, essentially vigilantes conducting this sort of work in public. And so, yes, there was a retired firefighter from Chicago who was falsely accused online of participating in the riot. Actually, he was hundreds of miles away doing nothing of the type. Chuck Norris was falsely accused of being there as well. But I think for the most part, these groups have done a pretty good job of limiting the amount of misidentification that goes on. And that's partly because they've learned from situations like the Boston Marathon bombing and these sorts of efforts have matured over the last decade. So you have major Twitter accounts that are organizing and mobilizing these efforts saying to their followers, don't identify anybody publicly. You can refer to them by their hashtags that everybody in the community knows who you're talking about so that you can label different photos as featuring the same person. But once you think you've identified this person by name, send that information to the FBI or to an investigative journalist to somebody who can do the final work of fact-checking. And, you know, for the most part, I think these groups have stuck to that. But look, it's an expansive network of people, some of whom are untrained, and you can't control everybody or stop people from breaking the rules.
0: And some of them, maybe all of them, have fears themselves of being identified. Explain why.
2: A lot of people got into this not for personal glory, but just because they wanted to participate in in something like this and make a difference and fulfill some sort of civic obligation. And So they kind of shy away from the limelight and also, I think, rightly fear that were they to be publicly identified, they could be harassed online by Trump supporters or right wing groups could attempt to dox them to undermine their work in some way. And so a lot of the people that I talked to preferred not to be named, which was completely understandable.
0: How many hours a day did they work at this? Because it must have taken a mental toll for some of them, looking at these videos hour after hour.
2: Yeah, it's a range. I mean, I talked to a stay-at-home mom in the Pacific Northwest who would basically just spend a few hours every evening working on it once she was done with her regular daily obligations. But Chris Sigurdsson, the actor in Canada, because he was out of work, was spending 40 hours a week on this for the first three months. Now, for some people, they've dialed it back as they've moved on from that kind of initial rush of sorting through the footage and identifying people to the harder work of putting together these more complex conspiracy narratives. But you still got people spending hours, hours a day on this, and there's still a kind of vast community that's fascinated by the
0: riot. You describe it in your story as an Internet subculture. How many people are involved in this? I mean, is it hundreds? Is it thousands?
2: That's sort of tough to estimate. I mean, if you were looking at the total number of people who were doing any form of sedition hunting at any point since January 6th, I'm sure it's in the thousands. The number who are still concertedly working on it is definitely much smaller But it's still a kind of vibrant community that has its own sort of lingo and set of hashtags that it uses to communicate with each other. And it's become a really sophisticated effort. Like I said, they've created this kind of online infrastructure, map, photo galleries, facial recognition databases. That members of the community can use to do these types of projects, which are becoming increasingly complicated in nature. You also have various academics who are starting to explore January sixth related issues in more detail. And so there's this kind of vibrant subculture that's forming around January sixth. You know, you can almost parallel it to something like the Kennedy assassination and the sort of Culture of obsessives that developed around that. I mean, here you've got people sort of fixating on this historical event and trying to understand it as best they can and to fill in the gaps that the government may have left
1: in its own investigations.
0: It's just fascinating. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter
1: David Yaffe Bellani. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q and Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. The first of President Joe Biden's
0: judicial nominees were easily confirmed this week, beginning what Democrats who control the Senate have promised will be a fast-moving effort to approve his picks for the federal bench. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Tell us about Julian Niels and Regina Rodriguez. They were the first
3: two district nominees who were confirmed. Judge Niels will fill one of six vacancies that's an emergency in the District of New Jersey. He's a longtime lawyer in that district who was an Obama nominee but was never given a final vote re-nominated by Biden and confirmed pretty overwhelmingly 66 to 33 to fill that emergency. And so that's great in terms of the priority that was set by confirming him. The emergencies need to be filled, and New Jersey is in an extreme situation because of the caseloads and and the many vacancies. Rodriguez was confirmed for the District of Colorado, and I believe she fills an emergency as well. She also was a nominee, President Obama, but did not get a hearing or committee vote. And she has been a federal prosecutor as well as a partner in a major law firm and done all kinds of interesting work in the federal courts.
0: It's interesting that neither of these got votes in the Senate when they were nominated by Barack Obama, but they did get Republican votes this time around.
3: Yeah, and I I think that to the quality of the nominees. They're both highly qualified, mainstream nominees with a lot of experience. And so Republicans don't really have a very good reason to vote against them. And so that's why you see relatively bipartisan votes. Still, I mean, there were Republicans who voted no. um, But they may just vote no on anyone, unless the person is perfect. (laughs) Uh, That's what I think you see reflected, but I would consider those votes for both of them to be bipartisan, uh, and strongly so.
0: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has teed up votes to limit debates on Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Saeed Karashi. Why is he limiting debate?
3: Because he can't get unanimous consent. You need all 100 senators to agree or not oppose before you cut off debate. And because some Republicans are withholding their consent, you have to have a cloture vote. Those uh, have been used uh, pretty frequently, both by Democrats with Trump nominees as well as Republicans. And it's fairly standard, but there are 50 votes if all the Democrats vote. And so there shouldn't be an issue. Uh, So I think both Judge Jackson. And Judge Qureshi, who's a magistrate judge in New Jersey, will have affirmative closure votes. And then Qureshi will have a confirmation vote later today uh, after two hours of debate. You need 30 hours of debate for Judge Jackson because she's a nominee to the D.C. Circuit.
0: Of all the Biden nominees, Katanji Brown-Jackson is the one that I think most people know about. Tell us why.
3: Well, she's been a district judge. Uh, President Obama appointed her in 2013. She's had a number of high-profile cases. One that most people talk about it involves a subpoena for Don McGahn's testimony, where she wrote, I think, a 120-page uh, opinion. And she had a very strong hearing, answered clearly and comprehensively all of the questions from both sides of the aisle. And President Biden has promised to name a black woman to the first vacancy that he fills, and most people say that she is the front runner for that position. Also, the D.C. Circuit is the second most important court in the country because of the kinds of cases that it hears on appeal.
0: Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin pushed back on the Republican litmus test for nominees that they must be originalists. Explain what originalism is and why the Republicans are so adamant about it at this point.
3: Well, what Republicans are adamant about is a good question. And I think (laughs) even strong originalists disagree about exactly what the definition is. But I think the general notion is that originalists believe that you try to apply the Constitution in a way that the framers of the Constitution would have understood what they were doing in 1789. And so that is somewhat controversial, but most people do also agree that you look at what the original meaning might have been to the extent you can tell what it is. But others say that the Constitution is a document that's meant to endure for over centuries, as it has. And of course, there are amendments, as Chuck Grassley said. And yesterday, as a retort to the chair, saying all of those amendments, like the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, also must be looked at in terms of the original intent of the amendment draft. And that's what the debate is about.
0: Carl, when did originalism become a doctrine of such importance to Republicans? I don't recall questions about originalism being so important in Supreme Court confirmation hearings years ago as compared to today. Well, I
3: think it is relatively recent, Um, and I think, for example, Justice Scalia was a strong proponent of originalism, as as have been others. Um, And I think probably uh, partly it reflected some response to the Warren Court's jurisprudence um, since, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, 70s. you know, when uh, the 4th, four, four, 5th, and 6th Amendments and others, uh, 14th amendment, were um, read somewhat broadly. Um, and so there is, a in part, originalism is a response to that. Um, but as Durbin said and others have said uh, in talking about originalism, um, we know what the history of the country was, and and what the Constitution looked like, uh, and indeed, women uh, and African Americans were, you know, excluded really, right, because they didn't uh, have votes, and and slavery was written into the Constitution until 1808, and so I think that's part of the response there. And of course, women got the vote in 19 or 20.
0: So, can you be? An originalists, and be what's considered a liberal judge? I don't know. Are there any?
3: Well, sure. I mean, I do think uh, even the uh, justices like uh, Kagan uh, and Sotomayor and Breyer would say that you do look at the meaning originally, but they're not going to feel bound by what the understanding was at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. That's not all you look at, but you know, I think they would even agree, and many people who are moderate or centrist or even liberal would agree that you still start with the words and, and the understandings, perhaps at the time of adoption, and then. But again, as Marshall and others said from the Supreme Court, um, that. The Constitution is is a document for all times, And there has to be some flexibility uh, in terms of understandings at the time and different understandings today as the nation evolves.
0: At this hearing, there were Eunice Lee, who's nominated to the Second Circuit, and Veronica Rossman, who's nominated to the Tenth Circuit. Tell us about their backgrounds.
3: Well, Biden pledged. Uh, as a candidate and since, to uh, nominate and confirm uh, people who um, are diverse in terms of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, ideology, and experience. And the White House Counsel, Dana Remus, and the President have stressed that with their first set of nominees and the subsequent ones the two who were for the appeals court, they both have long pretty long records as federal public defenders. And so they're basically criminal defense attorneys and that reflects experiential diversity that is sometimes lacking. For example, in the second circuit, Lee would be the only person who brings that experience to that important court. And so that's what you see reflected in those two nominations, it's no secret that many judges on both the district and appellate bench in the federal system uh, are former prosecutors, usually in U.S. attorney offices, but uh, they overwhelmingly outnumber the federal public defenders or other criminal defense attorneys. So, trying to have some balance there in terms of experience. And so, that's what you see reflected in the backgrounds of those two nominees.
0: The Republicans on the committee were focused on how these nominees with experience primarily in criminal cases would fare in cases involving civil litigation, which is more common on the appellate level. Does that really matter? Well,
3: that's a, a good question. There were some questions, especially from Senator Cotton, about experience in civil litigation. And I don't think that there is a real problem here. Many people go on the bench, both at the circuit and district level, who come from a predominantly civil or predominantly criminal background. And so the question is always asked or often asked by senators, uh, if you haven't uh, engaged in that kind of practice, can you um, master the other kind of practice? And to me, it's more critical perhaps at the district level than it would be at the appellate level. And even the questions that were asked, for example, by Senator Cotton uh, are ones that are pretty basic that, um, you know, require you to look either at the Constitution or the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, for example. And so I don't think there is a problem you know, that warrants a no vote vote. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think that that senators are probing um, whether people have uh, relevant experience. Rossman, on the other hand, did say that she had engaged in some civil practice uh, prior to becoming a, a federal public defender. So that's, that's the issue. And I think most senators are satisfied that Lee is extremely intelligent and done incredible work as a Uh, federal public defender, state public defender, for a couple decades.
0: Republican Senator John Kennedy was very critical of Lee because she said she doesn't have a personal judicial philosophy. And he said, you're going to be on the United States Court of Appeals if you're confirmed, and you don't have a judicial philosophy about how the United States Constitution should be interpreted. I mean, do you need to have a judicial philosophy?
3: Well, a lot of people think you don't necessarily have to have one, and he really wasn't very clear about what he meant uh, in asking a question. And so the nominee, I think, wasn't sufficiently responsive to him, to what he wanted, but I think he was looking for a commitment. Are you an originalist? And that's, in a way, a, an unfair question um, in the sense that, you can't answer it in a way that necessarily satisfies the questioner uh, to some extent uh, because it, it's subtle and originalism means different things to different people. And so I think she was saying basically that she understands about constitutional interpretation, but she doesn't have a philosophy of it. She's not doesn't come to it as an originalist or the other kind of epithets that conservatives often use is the living Constitution. Kennedy didn't say that, but I think it was implicit in his question. And again, uh, as Durbin point, has pointed out, um, the Republican nominees from Trump often refuse to answer the question, uh, questions of that sort as well, coming from Democrats, about um, their uh, philosophies. So I think what we're seeing a lot of times is just the reverse of what we saw with Trump, is Democrats are also being cautious and using um, the same kind of defensive tactics to protect their nominee, which shouldn't be surprising.
0: The senators who oversee the federal judiciary are requesting 10 years' worth of travel records for Supreme Court justices. Why the travel records, and what are they trying to do?
3: Well, there was a letter that came from Sheldon Whitehouse, who chairs the subcommittee uh, of the Judiciary Committee on Federal Courts Oversight, Agency Action, Federal Rights, and Senator Kennedy as a ranking member on that committee, the highest-ranking Republican, and they sent a letter. They want to have more transparency at the court in terms of possible conflicts of interest, I think, and perhaps uh, some kind of standards or ethical code, which of course does bind the lower federal court judges, but there isn't this sort of same requirement at the Supreme Court level. And so it's really, I think, an effort to have more transparency around possible conflicts uh, and ethics questions that might be at issue for the justices. There are questions about that. It's a, Hagan, and others have said that Chief Justice Roberts is seriously considering whether to introduce a conduct code for the Supreme Court justices. And that may be a good idea, but there are concerns about separation of powers. How much should Congress require the Supreme Court to comply with certain strictures that senators might think are important? They have to tread lightly, and it's a delicate issue. I think that eventually something will be put into place because, of course, Chief Justice Roberts deeply cares about the reputation of the Supreme Court and its credibility with the American people Uh, as an institutionalist. I think he might, might be moved in that direction. So I think that's what this initiative is about, more transparency at the Supreme Court, perhaps more by way of ethics requirements. But I don't know whether Congress is going to pass legislation to that effect because of the separation of
0: powers. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.